Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible, impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. This verse means that God wants to see faith in us. That he's, he is looking for us to have faith. Last week we talked about what faith is. We talked about faith as being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. We mentioned that R.T. France put it this way, faith has a dual perspective that could be simply summed up as looking forward to the fulfillment of God, sure of what we hope for, (laughs) and looking up to the unseen reality of his presence, certain of what we do not see. So whether you're looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promise or looking up into the unseen reality of God's presence, faith is putting your trust in something that you can't see. Now, I'm going to tell you why I'm doing this series. And I'm going to get a little vulnerable with you when I tell you about this, but the reason I am doing this series is because I hate faith. I I don't like faith. God likes it, I don't, okay? I like sight. I like to see what I'm trusting in. You know, I... For example, I would rather trust money I have in the bank than to believe that God's going to provide for my needs this week. I want to know in advance that the money's there. I'd have a hard time doing life like George Mueller did. George Mueller, you remember, was a man who started orphanages and, and, uh, and helped kids throughout his lifetime. When he was young, I guess he walked the streets and he would see children everywhere with no mom and dad. And he felt God was calling him to, to provide for them. And so he wanted to start orphanages, but he didn't have the resources. He didn't have the money. He didn't have the building. <laughs> didn't have all these things so he prayed for them and God in a variety of ways started to answer these prayers and provide what he needed sometimes a wealthy person would send a large amount of money or a child would give just a small amount and over and over again he saw God provide many times it came to the last minute and um On one occasion, we're told that the house mother of the orphanage informed George Mueller that the children were dressed and ready to go to school, but there was no food for them to eat. So George told her, send the 300 children into the dining hall and have them sit down at the tables. And then they all got there. He got up and he thanked God for the food (laughs) and waited. You know, George believed that God was going to provide. Within minutes, a baker had knocked on the door and said, Mr. Mueller, last night I couldn't sleep. Somehow I knew you were going to need this bread this morning, so I baked all this bread for you. And he brought it in, and he brought all this bread in. And a few minutes later, there was another knock at the door, and the milkman was there. His cart had broken down in front of the orphanage, and the milk was going to spoil by the time he could get it fixed. So he says, could you use some milk? And and they fed 300 people that day. At the end of his life, you know, a year before he died, 
he was asked if God had always been faithful to his promises for him. And here was his reply. He says, always. He's never failed me once. For nearly 70 years, every need in connection with this work has been supplied. Orphans from the first until now have numbered almost 10,000 kids. But they've never lacked a meal. Never. Hundreds of times we started the day without a penny in hand, but our Heavenly Father has sent supplies by the moment they were required There never has been a time when we didn't have a wholesome meal. During all these years, I've been enabled to trust God and the living God and Him alone. 1,400,000 pounds have been sent to me in answer to prayer. We have needed as much as 50,000 in one year, and it's all come in on time. He says, no man on earth can say that I ever asked him for a penny. I didn't go out trying to find, find the money. He says, we didn't have committees formed to try to raise money there was no collections no endowments he says all that came in was an answer to prayer he says my trust has been in God and God alone and he has many ways of moving the hearts of men all over the world to help us while I'm praying here sometimes someone on another continent will feel the the need and and they'll send us help and he says expect great things from God and great things you'll have there's no limit to what he's able to do praise God praise his glorious name praise him for all praise him in everything I've praised him many times when he has sent me six pence, and I've praised him when he has sent me 12,000 pounds. Pretty inspiring, huh? He's held up as an example, someone to be admired. But I don't want to live life like that. In fact, uh, I don't know many Christians who are willing to live like that. Most people aren't willing to do what God wants them to do until they know they can do it. You know, Mueller uh, believed that God wanted him to help orphans, so he stepped out in faith before he had the resources that he needed. I want to know that there's enough money, enough food in the fridge before the kids come to supper. I'd be a wreck going through life like that. You know, many times uh, Christians have a hard time obeying God. They want to know that all their ducks are in a line before they set out in faith. A classic example of this is in our giving to God. Many Christians never even consider tithing their money because they don't believe that God's going to take care of them if they do. Maybe they think that someday, you know, sometime when they have a surplus, they can start but they never have one. They're hesitant to be obedient in one of the most basic matters of faith, making God Lord of their money. You know, instead of giving God what he's instructed them to give for his work, they they want to make sure their needs are met first. But doesn't giving God the first fruits mean that we give to him before? (laughs) Anything else? And I'm just saying that to say faith is hard. Faith is hard. And one of the areas I need to grow in is is I prefer sight to faith. Now, I'm sorry I'm your pastor. I'm sorry if I'm disappointing you because if faith is what pleases God and I'm lacking faith, you know, I got a problem, right? 
And that's why I wanted to focus on this topic of faith, because I know God wants me to trust him for more. You know, one of the areas that I, I, I need to grow in is just the willingness to do certain things that God lays on my heart. You know, sometimes I'm hesitant to do something because I'm unsure what God's going to do, if he's going to do his part. Maybe it's being willing to witness to someone that I know isn't very receptive and I'm not sure how to go about it. And I, I don't think I'm going to have the right words. So I kind of back off. Or maybe I'm afraid to tackle a ministry that I don't feel gifted for. Maybe it's being hesitant to take a step I feel God wants me to take because I don't feel like I have the resources for it. Maybe it's being reluctant to give something that I don't think I can afford to give. Maybe it's not trusting God loves me when I don't sense his presence. Maybe it's failing to be at peace in some negative circumstance in my life since I'm not convinced in my heart that God really cares about the details of my life. And whatever it is, I hate faith. (laughs) Although I know a lot about God, I've studied Him all my life, my default response isn't to trust Him to meet my needs. Now, I believe God is all-powerful. I have no question about that. And I believe he's always good. I have no question about that. But I'm still uncertain that he's going to come through for me. And and I want you to know that when I feel that way, I I don't put the blame on him. I put the blame on me because I'm sure he's all powerful and I'm sure he's good. So if there's a problem, it must be on my part. I don't doubt his character. Sometimes I doubt my worthiness. Sometimes I, I feel maybe I don't deserve his support. Or or maybe this is even more the case for me. Maybe I'm not convinced that my circumstances are important enough to warrant his help. But for whatever reason, I often find myself spending more time calculating my resources than I do listening to God and stepping out in faith for him. And what does God tell me he wants from me? He wants me to trust him completely. He wants you to trust him completely. But faith stresses me. And yet I know that the only way I can ever know God is through faith because I can't see him. I can't talk to him like I can talk to you. And the only way I, uh, I can ever believe he loves me is through faith and And so it's critical for everything about my relationship with God. Hebrews 11 tells us God wants us to have faith. You know where faith comes from? Faith, we're told, comes from taking God at his word. Paul put it this way, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ it seems to me that, that if you're going to have faith, that there's, there, there's three things that you need. First of all, you need to know what he says, because you have to have something to believe. Secondly, you must trust that it's true. When God says it, that should settle it for you. It's true. And third, and this is the hard part, you have to live in light of that belief. <laughs> it's not enough just to know what he says. It's not enough just to say you trust it, because if you really trust it, you're going to live in light of that belief. And so biblical faith is as simple as that. One, two, three, no trust and live. 
Well, in this series, then, we're going to be looking at men and women who are singled out and, and noticed because of their faith. And we're going to be seeing how their faith was expressed. It's going to be expressed differently in each of these people's lives. There's a lot of different suggestions of how their faith is expressed. One person put it like this one, this for the first four. They had all the ones in Hebrews 11 listed. But they said Abel had a justifying faith you'd seen in his worship. Enoch had a sanctifying faith seen in his walk. Noah had a separating faith seen in his witness. Abraham had an obedient faith seen in his trust. And they just go right down the list. And what I'm saying is they all express faith in different ways. And the first person we're going to look at in this chapter, the one who, who leads out in this hall of fame of faith is Abel. Now, doesn't it seem a little strange that in this list of great men and women of faith, they would start with a martyr? I mean, what good did his faith do him? He dies. <laughs> You know, I thought faith was supposed to fix everything in your life. Sure didn't fix things in his life. And, and, you know, starting with a martyr might make you a little less excited about being a person of faith. I mean, shouldn't God protect us when we have faith? And, and, you know, I think, well, maybe the author's reason for starting with Abel is to remind us that what matters most to God is not that we're kept from suffering, but what matters most to God is that we have a right relationship with him. And why not start this list with a great man or woman of faith, a leader like Moses or a popular hero like David? Why Abel? Abel, you know, he doesn't even really say anything in Scripture. He's just there. (laughs) And, and, And I believe that there's a reason for starting with Abel. First of all, he's going through it sequentially, so so that's uh, a good reason because he's part of the first family. But I think there's other reasons for starting with Abel, too. And because I, I, I think that Abel's faith shows us how we can be acceptable to God. And, and isn't that the appropriate starting place if we want to be men and women of faith? We have to first be in relationship with God. Abel's faith, it's been suggested, is a saving faith. It's a justifying faith. It's the kind of faith that makes our worship pleasing to God. And so look with me at 11, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, as I read a verse on Abel's faith. It says this, By faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. A better sacrifice. By faith he was commended as righteous man when God spoke well of his offering. And by faith he still speaks even though he's dead. This verse tells us three things about Abel's faith. First of all, it tells us Abel offered a better sacrifice. Then it says that he was commended as a righteous man because of his sacrifice. And then it says he still speaks to us today. And so we're going to look at those three things here this morning. First, it tells us Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain did. You know, you're looking at two men here, Abel and Cain. And their lives go very different directions. Cain is a murderer, 
And Abel is a worshiper. And sometimes when you look at situations like that and you see one son making wrong choices and it becomes a detriment to society, you begin to say, okay, what, what's the cause of this? What's the cause of this behavior? And people start to say, well, maybe it, it's the, the, the heredity they have or maybe it's, it's the environment they, they, they live in or maybe one has a work ethic and the other doesn't. He's just lazy. Or, or maybe one... Uh, lacks religious motivation. You know, if people just live their religion, they wouldn't behave like this. And so you look at these things, heredity, environment, work, uh, religious motivation, and, and you think, is that what's t- coming to play here? Warren Wiersbe says that. Try applying those solutions to Cain and Abel. Why did, why did Cain turn out the way he did and Abel turn out the way he did? He says, was it heredity? He says, no, they're both from the same family. <laughs> Environment, they were raised just outside of paradise. Employment, both of them were hard workers. Cain was a farmer, Abel was a shepherd. Religion, both of them worship God. Wasn't, one wasn't an agnostic and one a Christian. They both worship God. They met at the same altar. They brought offerings to this God to present to God. They were both religious men. Yet in spite of these things, these two people responded very differently. One was a worshiper and one was a murderer. You know, what was it that made Abel's sacrifice acceptable and Cain's sacrifice unacceptable? Well, there's two main suggestions. The first is that the difference between the two men was a matter of attitude. The idea here was not that the nature of the offering was different, but the attitude with which it was given is what matters. These people argue that both kinds of offerings were completely appropriate. The Bible makes allowance for both kinds. They both brought the fruit of their labors what one made one acceptable and the other not was the heart behind the gift, not the gift. John Calvin is one of the people who saw, saw it this way. He said this. He says, The sacrifice of Abel was more acceptable than that of his brother only because it was sanctified by faith. Where did his pleasing come from other than that he had a heart that was purified by faith? So it was a heart matter. And I, I believe personally that, that was definitely part of it. The attitude with which we bring our offerings to God always matters to him. The psalmist in Psalm 50 said to God's people, I don't rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings which are ever before me. That people were bringing their sacrifices and their burnt offerings and all these kinds of things. And, and God says, I don't rebuke you for that. You're doing the appropriate thing. You're doing what you're required to do. That's right. That's what I require of you. But he goes on and says, but I want more than your offerings. He says, do I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the, goat, the blood of goats? No. I, he says, sacrifice thank offerings to God. Be thankful. Fulfill your vows. Be true to your word and, and call on me in the day of trouble. You know, depend on me for help and I will deliver you and you will honor me. And here it's not the gift. It's the heart with which a gift is given that matters to God. A right gift with a wrong heart is unacceptable to God. And the scriptures indicate that God rejected Cain's offering, and when he did, Cain became very angry, and this reveals what's going on inside his heart. And when God pleaded with Cain 
to do what's right, warning him that sin was crouching at the door of his heart, seeking to master him. God's plea was met by silence on the part of Cain. Cain had a heart problem. But, but I personally believe there's something even more going on here than that. The second suggestion as to what made these two men's offerings so differently different was what a lot of commentaries call a matter of obedience. It wasn't that the two brothers brought the same offering. It was that one was given in faith and the other was rejected for unbelief. And what does it mean to give something in faith? Well, over and over again, what the biblical scholars do is point out that faith is always obedience to God's revelation in in, in terms of biblical faith. To do a thing by faith, you, you do it in response to a word from God. You get a word from God, and by faith you obey it. And the idea that Abel was accepted suggested that he knew what God wanted him to do and he did it. Paul again says, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You know, the thought here is that in some way God must have made his will clear. And think think about it. There must have been some ideas about what God expected in their worship. Otherwise, why would they be coming to the altars in the first place to bring their offerings? And why would they be going at a certain time to a certain place? And, and, And how did Abel know that one of the gifts that's acceptable is an animal sacrifice? I mean, slaying an animal and burning it before God, why not give him, you know, wool from the sheep? In some way, God must have been communicating to them that, that sacrifices were appropriate in worship. Cain and Abel would have been Adam and Eve's son. and They would have learned probably about sin offerings from their parents and Adam and Eve learned about the consequences of sin in kind of an unusual way. In Genesis 3.21, we're told that when they sinned, the first thing they did was they realized that they were guilty and they, they withdrew from God and they hid from God and they were afraid that they would be exposed. They felt guilt. <laughs> Something new. And what did God do in response to their, their sin? Their hiding from Him. They, they want to be covered because they, they, they feel unacceptable. And they're trying to cover themselves with leaves, right? But leaves weren't adequate to cover their sins. And so what does God do? He, he, he goes and he slays an animal. And he clothes them in the skin of the animal. So many people have pointed out what a fitting picture this is of the work of Christ. You see, God dealt with their sin by slaying an innocent animal, a substitute to cover their nakedness, their guilt. God had said before they sinned that that sin would produce death. And and here's what happens, you know. 
There's death right away after they sin. Not the death of Adam and Eve, though that's going to come because as a consequence of their sin, but that's not the first thing that dies, but a death of a substitute, an animal that would lose its life to cover them. The great 18th century evangelist George Whitfield connects us to Jesus. He says this, he says, what were the coats that God made of our first parents, but the types of the application of the merits of the righteousness of Christ on the believer's heart. He says, we're told that those coats were made of skins of beasts. Those beasts were slain in sacrifice in commemoration of the great sacrifice, Jesus Christ, that thereafter would be offered. The skins of the beasts thus slain, being put on Adam and Eve, taught them their sinful nakedness was to be covered with the righteousness of of the Lamb of God. In this way, God revealed how sinful man was to reproach him. Here, man was taught that sinners ought to bring a sacrifice to cover their sins if they want to relate to him. Now, if this was right, Abel's faith was an expression of his conscious need of a sin covering. Cain came his own way. Instead of bringing a sin offering, he brought the fruit of his labor. Cain's offering was a monument to pride and self-righteousness. Abel, on the other hand, brought God what God wanted. It was an acceptable offering. Cain met God on his own terms, not God's. Cain did his own thing. Cain thought he could approach God on the merits of his own work. Cain gave God the best of his labors. He said, here, God, isn't this terrific? Look what I got to give you. And Cain, it's been pointed out, is the father of all false religion. You know what false religion is? Coming to God through our own efforts instead of the way God has prescribed. Through the blood of a sacrifice. It's what God did for us, not what we do for him that really matters. So secondly, Abel was commended as righteous because of his faith. We're told he brought a better sacrifice, a better offering, and now he's commended as a righteous man because of his offering. Because Abel trusted God, God declared him to be righteous. Actually, the doctrine of a blood substitute is repeatedly stressed in the book of Hebrews leading up to this point. The fact is, in Hebrews 9.22, we're told this, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Hebrews 9.22, the law requires nearly everything to be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And Hebrews 7.27 says Christ is that substitute. He, Christ, was sacrificed for sins once for all when he offered himself up. The point is you can't come to God any way you choose. You don't just say you believe in God and then decide for yourself how you're going to draw near to him. That, that was Cain's problem. Richard Phillips, who wrote the Reformed commentary on, on uh, Hebrews, says this. He says, there are really two kinds of offerings, two ways to come to God. Those that point to our own work, our own merits, our own righteousness... And those that point to Jesus Christ crucified in our place to pay for our sins. 
Unless we come to God confessing the guilt of our sin and our need for grace and embracing the gift of His Son to die in our place, we reject the one way He's provided for us to come to Him. He says, but people nevertheless persist in rejecting the way God has provided, especially those in churches that downplay the gospel. James Montgomery Boyce says the same thing. He says, this is the problem with so many good religious people. They come to God with their heightened sense of aesthetics and want to be received by God because of their beautiful offerings. (laughs) Look what I'm bringing to you, God. But God rejects their godless worship. There's no blood, there's no Christ, hence there's no true Christianity, however beautiful their service might be. John MacArthur says the same thing. He says it a little different. Listen to this. He says, there's nothing wrong with farmers. They're wonderful people. There's not really anything wrong with offerings of fruits and vegetables and grain. That's great. In Leviticus 19, God provides for those kind of offerings. So God had times when they brought that to him. He says, but, if you, he says, but you never brought the fruit first. Always blood first. Because blood was necessary to deal with sin before you could ever enter the presence of God. He says, there were meal offerings, weren't there? Yes, there were. Sure, and there were loaves, and they would wave the sheaves before God. But that didn't come first. Sin offerings and trespass offerings came first. You see, the blood had to be first, and, and then the other things could follow, follow. Bloodless meal offerings, yes, but, but the blood first to deal with sin. We should give our best to God. We should offer beautiful worship to Him. Why? Because He's deserving of the best we have to give. There's no higher privilege in doing things for the honor of God and His name But this only comes after the blood. Only after we have confessed our guilt and placed our faith in the sacrifice he's provided can we bring anything to God. Jesus said on one occasion, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And a lot of people think what he's saying. He's he's saying, follow me. I'm a discipler. You can come with me and I will show you how you should live and this kind of things. And that will make you acceptable to the Father. But when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's not talking about his life example. He's not talking about his teaching. He's talking about His sacrifice, the sacrifice of his life for you and I to cover our sins and make us worthy to come to the Father, not on our own behalf, but on the work of the cross of Christ for us. Rather than referring to the shed blood of Christ, are trusting in the sacrificial offering. Cain brought the fruit of his labor. Abel, on the other hand, depends on the life of another. Abel shows us a sinner can be acceptable to God by sacrifice. Through sacrifice, the one trusting in, God is declared righteous through their faith. You know what that means? 
that means none of us have to be disqualified from coming to God. It's available to all of us. We all qualify because we're all sinners, right? But we all have to come to him the same way. By placing our trust in a substitute for us. It's not the fruit of our labors that wins God's approval. It's the work of Christ being applied to us. What we don't understand is it wasn't that Abel was a good man and Cain was a sinner. Both of these men were sinners. They were both bearing the fallen nature of their parents, Adam and Eve. When Abel brought a blood substitute, the Lord had regard for his offering. The blood turned God's wrath away by him looking to the coming of Christ, God was looking toward the coming of Christ. And on that basis, God received Abel's offering with gladness. And Cain's offering would have been accepted if he had come in the same way. That's why God asked him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Finally then, uh, we're told that Abel still speaks. Even though he's dead, he's still speaking. Verse 4, by faith, the last part, it says, and by faith he still speaks even though he's dead. You know what that means? That means we're right in applying what we learn from Abel to our lives. It's appropriate that this first example of faith have to do with acceptable worship. The reason that Abel still speaks to us is that his life shows us how we can be made right with God. Abel's life shows us how sinners can come to God. Our salvation is not based on the works that we have done, but on the precious blood of Christ as a substitute for us. There's an old hymn that says this. The title of the hymn is Not What These Hands Have Done, and it says this. And it really sounds like it's talking about Cain and Abel, but it says this. It says, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. That's the voice of Abel, still speaking, though dead. (laughs) The only way we can come and be acceptable to God is by the way Abel came. We too are justified by faith. In God's substitute, we too are clothed in the righteousness of another. We too are accepted by God through faith in what Christ has done for us. As I ask the worship team to come forward, I'm going to just kind of summarize what I've said this morning by reading Charles Swindoll's words on this passage. He says this. He says, Genesis 4 tells us that Abel kept sheep, and his brother Cain was a tiller of the soil. Implied in this account is an important fact that God informed both brothers of the type of offering that he accepted. It was a blood sacrifice. Abel obeyed. Cain, however, chose to offer the work of his hands. Cain came to God his own way. Abel came God's way. Abel's faith was evidence in his offering. Cain's lack of faith was evidenced in his. 
Undoubtedly, Cain was sincere, but sincerity alone was no substitute for obedience. It's human nature to come to God our own way, on our own terms, with our own offerings and our own good works, but that's not God's way. God's way is through another offering, the shed blood of His only Son. And when we come to God, it can only be through faith in Jesus, not the work of our hands, no matter how hard or how long we have toiled or how plentiful the harvest. The only way we can come to God is through what God has offered to us, the gift of a sacrifice. And that's what we're going to celebrate. Isn't that cool? We're going to celebrate what God has provided for us as we partake of communion together this morning. What I want you to take away from this is I want you to realize that we all stand before God in a common place. We're all sinful humanity and one person's not in a good place because they're a good person and another person in a bad place because they're a bad person. We all need the covering of Christ. And so as we partake of the communion this morning, have hearts overwhelming with praise because you are qualified to come before God if you trust in the sacrifice he has provided for you.